Stop Cop City is a movement in Atlanta, Georgia that aims to stop the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. The Atlanta Police Foundation and the City of Atlanta are funding the $90 million project. The training center will include military-grade training facilities, a mock city, shooting ranges, and a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad. Opponents of the project fear that the training center will lead to a more militarized police force. They also believe that building the training center in an urban forest will cause environmental damage to a poor, majority black neighborhood. The Stop Cop City movement has been going on for more than two years. More than 60 people have been charged in a RICO case targeting activists who oppose the construction for various reasons, including environmental concerns. The forest in southeast Atlanta is home to wetlands that filter rainwater and prevent flooding. It is also a breeding ground for amphibians and a migration site for wading birds. I spoke with Professor Jocelyn Simonson, who wrote an article about the RICO case and is the author of the book, Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration. Welcome to Black Talk Radio News, and we would like to welcome Professor Jocelyn Simonson uh, to this broadcast. And we're going to speak with her about a recent article she wrote and a book that uh, is out already, if I'm not mistaken. But let's start with the article, Forget Trump, the latest Georgia RICO case is a disaster for civil liberties. So your your article uh, discusses the recent indictment of what's known as the Defend the Atlanta Forest Movement. Can you first explain to us what that movement represents, the parties, and, and, and just an overall view of that movement? Sure, absolutely. And thanks for having me today. Um, so the Defend Atlanta Forest Movement is not really the name of a movement. It's something the prosecutors kind of picked up on. But more broadly, what's known as the Stop Cop City Movement is a loose group of people, organizations, groups, citizens, little c citizens who oppose something the city of Atlanta is trying to do which is spend tens of millions of dollars uh, leasing uh, an area of a protected forest land to the Atlanta Police Foundation so that they can raise the forest and build a new uh, police training facility known as Cop City because it'll include some kind of a simulation of the city to do uh, training in. And so a lot of people in the city oppose this action for multiple reasons. Uh, there are some environmental groups who say, please don't raise a forest. Um, you know, it's it's old forest land. Uh, save the land. There are people who say, if we're going to spend billions of dollars on our city to keep us safe, we want it spent on other things, housing, education, et cetera. And then there are people also relatedly saying, we don't want more policing or more police training in our city. What we want is not to use the police as much as we do to solve our social problems. So it's a related set of groups that are trying to oppose something that the city is doing. In what ways are they uh, opposing uh, this proposed uh, building of a training facility? In all the kinds of ways that you might imagine, lots of different people might oppose something their city is doing. So they are gathering uh, more than 100,000 signatures to try to get a referendum on the ballot to use democratic means to stop the action. 
they are testifying in city council. Those are kind of, you know, traditional voting participatory things you can imagine. They're protesting. Uh, some people are occupying the forest in acts of civil disobedience. And then there have also been acts of uh, destruction, of vandalism. Um, apparently there were uh, car, police cars set on fire. So there's a whole range of tactics, again, because it's not one coordinated movement. It's, you know, more than 100,000 people who don't think, want their city to be doing this. And that's, by the way, more people than voted in the last local election in that city. Now, you mentioned um, earlier that this is a protected forest. Um, what what exactly do you mean? Is, does it, is it protected federally or by state legislation? What do you mean by protected forest? Um, I, I didn't mean um, that it's federal forest land. It's forest land that's in control of the city, but it has until now been protected, right? Been saved. Um, for environmental purposes, and also because it's nice to have a forest uh, in the, you know, in the range of your city. Okay. Now, who's on the other side of this? Who exactly is prosecuting? Because at first, you know, I heard of uh, Prosecutor Fannie Willis, who is prosecuting the Trump conspiracy on Rico of charges. And I know about her from some other cases. And I was like, I hope this ain't her. Um, and so who exactly is prosecuting this? It's actually not her. You know, she is a local prosecutor. The person prosecuting this indictment, this really unprecedented RICO indictment, is Christopher Carr, Chris Carr. And he's a Republican attorney general of Georgia. And he has said that he wants to run for governor of Georgia. So he has conservative political ambitions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in the article, you mentioned that the indictment incorrectly portrays um, this movement. We're just going to call it a movement, although it is understood, because I participated in, in civil disobedience and protests, and it just be a range of, organ whether they're former organizations or, or informal organizations, just collectives. So, um, how are they trying to portray it, the prosecutor? You said his name again is Carr? Carr, yeah. Attorney General Carr, Chris Carr. So the indictment is more than 100 pages, and it's kind of wild, right? I say this as a criminal law professor, former public defender. I've read a lot of indictments, and this indictment is odd. It's strange, and it doesn't quite make sense. It spends page after page after page defining ideas like anarchism, social solidarity, and mutual aid. And it goes into detail about how mutual aid means that people take care of each other, right? And so it's kind of portraying this group that uh, works together to do things like buy each other food as they work together to politically oppose something. And if you stop and think about that for a moment, how is that a criminal enterprise? I would but, think it's protected um, activity under the whether it's the federal constitution, First Amendment, or whether it's state constitutions. Now, admittedly, I haven't, I didn't think to look up the uh, Georgia Constitution, but you know, similarly, the First Amendment and across all the state constitutions are similarly worded. Right. And I guess the idea, you know, RICO or conspiracy law is really vast in the United States. It can be used to indict a lot of things that we don't use it for. 
But the idea is that if you have a group of people and together they're agreeing to even do one or two uh, things that are crimes, then suddenly we can declare them to be a racketeering conspiracy. So the indictment starts listing these overt acts like buying glue, buying food, you know, things that are just people taking care of each other or filming the police, things that are protected by the First Amendment. And the idea, the legal idea is not that those things are crimes, but that those are acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. But the indictment never quite explains what the conspiracy is, except for to be a coordinated movement. And again, they're not coordinated the way the indictment says. But the idea of the indictment is they're a coordinated movement and uh, people here and there in the movement do things that, by the way, are already being prosecuted in state court like vandalism or trespassing, right? If you're engaging in civil disobedience, sitting in a forest where you shouldn't be, sure, that's a crime. But it doesn't mean you're engaging in racketeering, right? And so these acts are already being prosecuted in state court. This is a new indictment, 61 activists loosely around a so-called movement. Uh, And it's a scary thing because it's essentially saying that civil disobedience, protests, just imagine if anyone has joined in a protest, say the summer of 2020, if anyone left their house, got on the street and joined a protest, now imagine that suddenly the idea is that everyone is in a racketeering conspiracy. Right, providing- Because at some point, someone is vandalizing a police car, right? Or someone is really angry, and so they're writing on graffiti, uh, stop police violence, right? There are things that happen when people are angry and frustrated. And sometimes they're on purpose. Sometimes they're not. We have a long history of civil disobedience in this country as being a profound political acts and sometimes criminalized. But the idea that AG Carr is now taking this widespread citywide movement that's to the left of the Democratic mayor and some of the Democratic city council people is really scary. Well, now that you mentioned, um, you know, some of the Democratic officials, have they used the power of the pen or the bully pulpit to speak out against? Because, for example, you mentioned 2020. Um, I live in a rural county in North Carolina, and it saw protests all during that summer in the wake of George Floyd uh, being murdered uh, by police. And, and, And so... You know, some of the criticisms that we have for like the mayor of Gastonia or some of the city council members as protesters were being arrested for peacefully protesting. They were loud, but they weren't doing any violent acts or any acts of vandalism, you know, but to not use the power of the pen to say, hey, you know, I'm the mayor. I, I know this wasn't the city police. This was the county sheriff's department. But, you know, I thought that we all agreed on the principles of freedom of expression, of uh, freedom of assembly. And so I'm against, you know, what is being done to criminalize these peaceful protesters. So have any of the Democrats down there in Atlanta um, connected to this, tried to use the power of the pen or the bully pulpit to speak out against what this Republican attorney general is doing? That's a great question. There are one or two city council people who have spoken out against some of the broadest uh, forms of oppression. But for the most part, we have to realize this is a mayor who's in support of the project, 
and has never condemned any acts of policing or prosecution. Someone was killed. Someone died sitting in a tree and the autopsy showed that there were shots in their back and the mayor has not condemned that, right? And um, not only that, the Stop Cop City, a Stop Cop City uh, group has gathered more than 100,000 signatures, which is more than you need, and given it to the city, uh, demanding that a referendum be put on the ballot. And at first, the mayor refused to have the petitions counted. And the city council then voted and directed the mayor to do that. And now they say they're going to count them. So there's been profound resistance from the city government. There have also been city council hearings. And we have to remember, the city council voted to do this. Okay. And so did the mayor. So this is a absolutely an establishment establishment move that crosses political lines. Now, the indictment that you talked about from Chris Carr uh, includes, and you touched upon some of this uh, explanation on uh, anarchism, collectivism, mutual aid, and social solidarity. First of all, I would see collectivism, mutual aid, and social solidarity as Christian principles for those out there who are Christians and those who claim to be Christians, especially uh, evangelical conservatives. So, you know, you can find many instance, instances of this happening in, in biblical scripture. So that's the first thing. But the other thing um, is that this really sounds a lot like FBI COINTELPRO that was prominent during the 60s and the 70s, which was used to target leftist groups and primarily uh, the Black Panther Party. Um, so do you agree uh, in my, with my uh, comparison um, with the overreach, the illegal activities of some have said of the FBI COINTELPRO program? Do you see I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not the same laws because COINTEL is the FBI and using federal laws, and this is a state attorney general. But overall, I agree with the comparison, absolutely. But you did. It's using, it's using yeah. go ahead. But you did have um, different party members of the Black Panther Party facing state charges. Exactly. And it seemed like the Panther 21, that seems like that was like a RICO type indictment of those. So that's that's why I'm drawing the comparison from. Absolutely. I think but I think the comparison also has to do with the police oppression. Right. People are killed. Uh, violent tactics are being used against protesters and then protesters are being indicted for so-called for being so-called violent. Um, and so and so that comparison, I think, is there. And then, yes, the use of conspiracy charges, whether federal. I think a lot of people think of that as a federal thing. But it's not. It's in every criminal jurisdiction, every jurisdiction in the United States has these conspiracy statutes for which you don't have to find a lot of action. There have to be overt acts. There don't have to be a lot of action, but they have to prove that there's a group that has some kind of common purpose. So now if we circle back to the indictment, I think that's what Chris Carr and his lawyers are trying to do in this bizarre indictment where they describe cooperatism and mutual aid, which as you say, is about people taking care of each other in kind of beautiful ways, actually. And they're using that, and, and they're using that to say, look, they're buying each other food. There's one that's for harm reduction supplies. And these are in amounts like $50, $80, it lists dozens and dozens of overt acts. And the concept behind that is that to take care of each other with a political purpose is racketeering. 
is a criminal conspiracy because in the eyes of the state, it is, right? It's pushing back against the way that policing has taken over as a way that we use our money and govern. And so the state is in a way freaking out uh, because there's such vast opposition uh, to building Cop City. They keep thinking they've won. They had a city council vote after, you know, person after person testified about why they should not give the money to Cop City. Still, the city council voted to do it. They thought they were done. And people said, no, you're not done. We're going to collect signatures for a referendum now. And now they're doing that. And so this is, I think, this is evidence that the state is starting to use the criminal law as a form of repression of social movements, which, as you say, absolutely correctly, is not a new move. It's just that the way it's being done in the state of Georgia right now feels new. You know, I study and write about uh, community bail funds and ways that people do things like post bail for each other to take care of each other. And I've been documenting uh, community bail funds for over a decade now, and I have never seen community bail fund activists prosecuted just for the act of paying bail for other people. They're calling that money laundering. So they're taking legal acts of taking care for taking care of each other and criminalizing them in new ways. I mean, money laundering is where you take the proceeds from a illicit activity, let's say drug dealing, let's say um, human trafficking or something like that. And then you invest that money into legitimate business to wash the money and make it appear legitimate. I mean, we've had uh, bail funds operate in this rural county. You know, people contributed to a bail fund to get me out of jail when I was arrested for protesting on, on the sidewalk about a, a year ago. So again, this is this and then this also speaks to, I was just speaking to someone about the lack of education or intellectualism among the populace, because if I'm sitting on a jury and you bring this indictment to me, there's no way I'm voting to indict these people knowing what I know. And, and so can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly the point, right? So that when a group gets together and they pay bail, they're following the rules of criminal procedure. Right. They're, gathering, they're gathering together money to take care of somebody. And in fact, the purpose of bail is supposed to be about community. It's a community getting together to pay bail for someone. I think it's beautiful and it's powerful. Now contrast a, the crime of money laundering or conspiracy to engage in money laundering. When those laws are originally passed, the idea is not we're gonna criminalize community bail funds doing something legal. But here they're using it and they're trying to find fine points about, you know, whose name is on the bank account. Uh, you know, when you click donate, what does it say? That sort of thing. Um, but I promise you, it was very, everything is very clear and above line. And if we were going to go out into the world and find every time someone's doing a good fund, go fund me and doesn't perfectly describe it and call that money laundering, that would be absolutely absurd. That's not what the criminal law should be for. Right. I, I do. It does appear on the surface that this is totally a political prosecution, because on the flip side of that, I haven't seen and not that I'm arguing for this to happen. But think about all the um, I'm going to be nice. Let's think about all these um, people who have donated to Donald Trump's <laughs> legal defense fund. That I mean, on the flip side, why aren't they being prosecuted in such a manner? 
I think that's a great question. Again, it's not that we want them to be prosecuted, but the fact that they're not shows perfectly, crystal clear, how this is a political prosecution and not some, you know, search out for money, money laundering out in the universe. It's just not. It's clear, it's obvious, and it's almost like AG Carr is proud of it. Right, right. Okay, so I've also uh, read in your article, you talk about the indictments, condemnation of other protected speech, like First Amendment violations, talking about people, what, flooding social media, complaining about their First Amendment rights. Can you speak on that? Again, it's kind of wild. And their description of how this conspiracy, like their proof of the fact that this is a criminal conspiracy is that they posted on websites uh, explaining about First Amendment rights to record the police. And then when it comes time to list the overt acts, some of the overt acts involve literally taking out a phone and making a video of a police officer arresting someone. That is not just protected conduct, it's really important democratic participation in the world to say, I see something happening and I'm gonna document it and record it and I'm gonna hold these public officials accountable for what they're doing. It's powerful political first amendment activity and to say that it's an act in furtherance of a conspiracy, again, really shows what the indictment is about at its heart. And I know we probably touched upon some of this, but can you discuss the broader implications of such an approach to um, law enforcement? Yes, I can. And again, we can look back historically at how policing and prosecution have been used to try to repress social movements. The Black Panthers is a great example, but any decade you can find an example of of, uh, United States law enforcement doing this in some way. So in some ways we can say this is a long historical arc of the government using the criminal law to repress social movements. But something new is also happening in the way that they're doing it. And it's scary. You know, I study and write about ways that people collectively get together to help each other in the context of policing prosecutions and prisons. So for example, community bail funds or court watching groups that go into court to watch what's happening and hold people accountable or participatory defense, you know, collective defense campaigns. This is historical too, going all the way back to the Scottsboro Boys and the ways that people have gotten together to defend people, going all the way back to the times when people were enslaved and people would collectively get together. These are really important forms of collective democracy, collective care. They show us another vision of justice and safety. And this is the theme, these are the themes of my book that was recently released, Radical Acts of Justice. And as I've been studying and writing about these things, I have seen the state react against them. I've seen the state try to pass laws saying you can't have bail funds. I've seen prosecutors disparage the public for sitting in the courtroom. But what I had not yet seen until this year, prosecutors saying those acts of taking care of each other, of mutual aid, of collective care, those are evidence of criminal conspiracy. Instead of what they are, which is evidence of people being politically active and taking care of the people in their community in the face of prosecutions and policing that they don't agree with. And we should be allowed to not agree with what the state is doing. Now, how should, in your view, society respond to such criminal laws like RICO being 
used to target political dissent, which again is supposed to be, you know, some of our highest forms of civil liberties. When they talk about this being the land of the free, you know, these are the type of principles that they point to, which, you know, my personal view is you're hypocritical because that's not how you project this image out to the rest of the world. That's not how it's really happening here on the ground. So, you know, um, how should we respond as a society at large? Right. So if we're thinking individually, there's no one right way to respond, except for what I don't want you to do is nothing, right? Everyone's in a different situation, has a different comfort. Some people are going to say, I'm going down to Atlanta and I'm going to sit in that forest and engage in civil disobedience with people in solidarity. Some people are going to say, I'm going to go down to Atlanta, but I, you know, given who I am, I'm really worried about uh, encountering the police or being arrested. So maybe I'm going to limit, you know, it's the same kind of tensions that people face during the civil rights movement about what to do with their bodies and how to put them on the line. And that's a personal decision to which there are no right answers. You can write about it on social media. People are having reading groups, right, to read parts of what's happening and educate each other. Or, and I think this is what we all learned in 2020, it can be as simple as taking care of your neighbors, right? Um, How many of us had elderly neighbors during COVID who couldn't leave their homes, so we went out and got groceries for them? What this indictment is saying is taking care of each other is criminal. So you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna keep taking care of each other. We're gonna keep showing the state that we don't need the police on their own to take care of each other. We don't need to spend billions and billions more on more policing. We can help keep each other safe and we can demand that our cities and our states put more money into other things that help us take care of each other, right? Like housing, education, uh, harm reduction centers, et cetera. Now let's move on to um, your book, uh, uh, the book Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling uh, Mass Incarceration. First off, could you just give us a broad overview and what inspired you to write this book? Sure. Yes. I'm a law professor now at Brooklyn Law School. Before that, I was a public defender for five years in the Bronx. So I'm based in New York City, but I've spent a lot of the last decade writing about, studying about, and being in community with community bail funds, court watching groups, participatory defense hubs, people doing people's budgets, social movements who think that we have too much incarceration, too much prosecution, and too much policing, and are getting together to help people within the system and live out understandings of justice and safety. And what inspires me about these groups, the reason I I act in solidarity with them, the reason I study them and write about them is because it's not just that they're helping individual people. And you've experienced this. It's not just that they bail one person out and then another person out and another person out. It's that they're bailing out strangers and they're bailing out people they don't know personally out of a broader political idea that there is too much prosecution, or maybe simply that somebody shouldn't sit in a cage in jail while they're still presumed innocent just because they can't afford the amount of bail that's been set in their case. These are actually powerful acts of democracy. I call them radical acts of justice because people are living out other ideas of justice. And when I think about large scale political change and democratic change, And this gets back to your question of what we can do. I think the way out of mass incarceration 
the entanglements of the carceral state in everything that we do in this country. The way out is to start living out together other versions of how people can keep each other safe without policing, and also how we can find justice without using prisons and cages. Because a lot of time what the court watching groups who I've studied and interviewed people in, when people sit in court again and again and again, what they come out with is a sense that what they're watching in their local criminal courts is not justice. And so then they're engaging in reading and collective acts to try to imagine how they can locate justice in their community. So I don't think that we should have incarceration and policing, but I don't think I can sit here and come up with alternatives. I think the way out, the way toward a beautiful radical future is in people acting together through collective care, collective imagining and intervening in the state. And the book is about people not engaging in civil disobedience, although that is powerful too, but literally following the laws. There's a First Amendment right to sit in a courtroom. You can go testify in city council about your budget. And so I'm proud of this book and I'm having a lot of fun going around the country and speaking with organizers in the book about it now that it's out. But what the book does not imagine, even at the end where I talk about backlash against these groups is the kind of indictments that we're seeing now in Cop City. Now, would you share with us some examples from your book about individuals or a group of of people who have come together to contest these established notions of, of justice and safety? Sure, I'd be happy to. I just came from Knoxville, Tennessee last week, so I'm going to start with that example because it's on my mind, and I was just in this energetic room of people who I write about in the book. So Knoxville, Tennessee, city in the middle of the state, a relatively small city. It's a place where uh, seven years ago, uh, a woman named Imani Mafalme Shulma was sitting in a room and heard someone talking about this idea of participatory defense, this idea that people could learn about each other's criminal cases and then support people who are being criminalized in different ways. And so Imani, uh, who again, I was just appearing at a number of places in Knoxville with, uh, gathered people together and they've met in a church basement every Monday for seven years, although sometimes on Zoom uh, during lockdown times. And they talk about cases that people have, they investigate them, they push public defenders to do better, they make videos, they sit in court and, and watch the trials or cases of people, not famous people, right? People who are not gonna be in the news, but instead have a group of people working in a church basement day in and day out to try to help people. And I write about it in this book and I give examples of cases uh, that have helped. But what I wanna say is I was in a room with some of these folks at a beautiful black owned bookstore space called The Bottom in Knoxville. If anyone's in Knoxville, you need to check it out. I was, and I saw a 13 year old who participates in this group. And then there was also a reverend who is more than 70 years old. I'm profiling him, but I'm pretty sure. The range of ages and people who are involved in this movement, who get involved by helping individuals and then come out of it saying, no, we need a broader vision. So we were talking about how to get kids to have youth-led uh, things where they uh, create community centers. We were talking about how to build housing for trans people who are coming out of prison, right? The kinds of visioning that comes out of it actually can feel kind of far away from the act of sitting in a courtroom and supporting someone. 
But part of the idea in the book is that in a place like Knoxville, community and care is built when we support people who are being criminalized and marginalized, because by doing that, we notice what the state says is justice, and then we feel in our hearts uh, another form of justice and caring. So that's one example. Now, one of the central themes of your book is shifting power away from elite actors in the criminal justice systems toward the collectives. So how might we start to bring that about? And if we can, you know, simplify what you mean, you know, for the masses. Yeah. So when I think about shifting power, we can imagine how a criminal courtroom, uh, perhaps you've been in it, perhaps you've seen it on TV, is dominated by the state and by the violence of the state, right? You have a criminal court judge, you have court officers with guns and handcuffs, you have a prosecutor who in a place like New York calls themselves the people. I was a public defender in the Bronx and literally the judge would say, where are the people today? And we would say the people are in the hallway, right? The prosecutor comes in and they say, we're the people of the state of New York. And it's like, are you? Because there's an audience here of actual people and you're just one person. And so the the vibe of court is that justice is being meted out by these people at the front of the room who are elite and have all the power and are supported by the guns. And then in the audience, like physically in the audience, you're not allowed to speak. You're not allowed to look at your phones. You have to face forward. Uh, You are not even counted as the people. So now imagine that a group comes in wearing matching yellow t-shirts that say court watch with, you know, one of the O's is actually in the shape of an eye, like, a, you know, a seeing eye. And they have clipboards and they're writing down everything that they see. They're writing down the name of the person who calls themselves the people. They're writing down the name of the judge. And they are uh, taking an account, both of each individual case, what they're seeing. And also collectively, what is it that you see when you sit there for hours and watch case after case after case? And you know what? Prosecutors and judges hate court watchers. They cannot stand to be watched, right? The people, uh, court officers have tried to get court watchers out of the courtroom and they'd have, they've had to remind courts, actually, we have a first amendment right to be here. Um, they, people don't like being watched, even though it is technically a public courtroom in which justice is being meted out in the name of the people. So court watch groups are then able to post on social media what they're saying, have protests, write reports. Um, there are some beautiful reports that have been written by court watching groups in which they give both statistics of what they see and real stories, right? Stories about these everyday prosecutions that don't make the news, but are actually what the people who are elected as prosecutors and call themselves the people are doing in our names every day, right? So one court watch NYC report is called Not In Our Name. And it is power shifting in actually a really big way. It's it's shifting who has the information and it's shifting who gets to tell the world what justice, what so-called justice is looking like in the courtroom and who gets to define for all of us what justice and safety mean. And there's a parallel thing in the other tactics that I talk about in the book. So when groups get together to envision a new people's budget, they're actually recategorizing the way that a city could spend money. So when you think, okay, here's a budget for public safety, what does your city or county or town mean? They probably mean money 
for policing and jails. That's just what we tend to mean. Well, along come people's budgets, whether it's hundreds of thousands of people in Los Angeles collectively shaping a budget or a small town like Somerville, Massachusetts, right? Where it's dozens of people getting together to shape a budget. They're giving us new categories. So in Los Angeles, you can go look back at their people's budgets that they write every year. The people's budget has a category of reimagined community safety. And in there is not policing. Instead, these are the kinds of things that the hundreds of thousands of people who filled out surveys and came to meetings thought would keep them safe. Sometimes it's better lighting, you know, something simple like that. Sometimes it's libraries or a place to be. Sometimes it's housing. A lot of it is programming for kids and, you know, an educational opportunity. And then they're testifying in front of city council. And again, when they're doing this, it's not just that person after person is testifying and giving their story. It's that they've collectively said to their local council, you think you can define public safety and you can have your definition, but there is another one out there, right? The state's versions of safety and justice are not inevitable. And when you show that to people in power, they don't just flinch, they try to push back. They repress you. And now they seem to indict you for conspiracy. Now, where where can individuals find your book? Is it available in bookstores? Can they purchase a copy online? Can you give us that information and any other information you would like people to have? Sure, yes. It's called Radical Acts of Justice. And you can buy it from most bookstores. And if they don't have it, they'll order it for you. And you can absolutely buy it anywhere online bookshop, Amazon, through your local public store, uh, local bookstore, anywhere like that. Um, And I am, you know, I have been on tour with a book and I am still doing events, including virtual events. So I'll be in conversation with James Foreman Jr. through the Brooklyn Public Library later in October. I'll be at the Brooklyn Book Festival on October 1st. Uh, I'm, I'm around, I'm online. And I also really welcome people to email me or let me know if they've read the book and if they want to talk about it or engage with it. Okay. And is there a space where we could go to find out your upcoming book tour dates in cases near where we are and we want to attend? Is there um, some, a Facebook page or anything where we could find out that information? The best place to find me is on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I have my book tour posted on, on Instagram, but a lot of it has happened. So I'm going to this week post one for October because I'm doing quite a few events, including virtual ones that you can zoom into. And what are those social media handles? Um, On Instagram, I am my name, Jocelyn Simonson, J-O-C-E-L-Y-N-S-I-M-O-N-S-O-N. And on Twitter, or whatever we call it now, I am J underscore Simonson. Okay. Now, I I do have a, a couple of questions, because I can give you some examples Uh, what the central theme of your book talks about ordinary people coming together, you know, to bring about transformative change. So um, in 2013, I read the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, first time ever in my life, and I was in my 40s at the time, and I deduced from reading it, they didn't actually abolish slavery. They, They transformed it 
from private plantation slavery to to now it's a function of the state or it's a function of the federal government. Because when you say accept as punishment for crime, you're carving out an exception for this very same activity. So I started reaching out uh, doing research to find out, hey, did anybody else have this view or am I just a crazy one? And I found a book was written called Prison Slavery by Mr. Lee Wood back in the 70s. Um, now, um, I reached out to him and we actually launched a podcast, but he fell into very poor health. You know, he has cancer and, and what have you. So um, I was forced to find some more hosts. So I found this this guy who was a spoken word artist by the name of Max Parthis. And then I found another individual. Um, the uh, Black Talk Radio audience knows him as Johanan, but his name is John Coolidge. So we started this podcast where we start, you know, breaking down the 13th Amendment, um, did podcasts examining each individual state constitution to see if it had similar exception clauses for slavery. And then, you know, in within three years, Ava DuVernay comes out with this documentary uh, called The 13th. And, and so, you know, we just kept at it, kept at it. And then we started to see individual groups pop up all around the country who work together, whether they were formal organizations or informal organizations or individuals who found politicians to who agreed that this should not be. And so I'm sure you're aware of the domino effect of all of these states since uh, Colorado um, removed the exception clauses from their constitution. And there's presently um, federal legislation to repeal the 13th Amendment. And so I can attest from personal experience the power of ordinary people, because I'm certainly an ordinary guy. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not wealthy. Um, but I do know how to research and I do, I am technically inclined and got in on the podcast game early. And so I think this has made a tremendous uh, difference. And so I just wanted to know, were you aware of what we call the new abolitionist movement? Yes, I, I love this. And I'm so impressed um, with all of your research. Uh, a lot of people, I think, only heard about the 13th Amendment when Ava DuVernay came out with the documentary. Uh, and now I worry that people have already lost sight of it. But you're absolutely right. We didn't abolish slavery. We didn't. We said there's an exception for it. And the place that we located for the exception for it has now become our main source of repression and just state violence. And that is not a coincidence. Mm. It's not a coincidence. You can draw a direct line from it. From You can draw a direct, direct line from the enslavement of people of African ancestry uh, to today, mass incarceration or even incarceration at all. And the way we can draw that direct line is not because historians have drawn it for us. It's because people like you or people are getting together to notice it, to learn about it, and to try to lobby to change the Constitution. Changing the Constitution is no joke. You got to get a majority of states uh, to uh, ratify it. We saw that with the Equal Rights Amendment, for instance, which mm -hmm. would seem like just to have gender equality in the Constitution would not seem like it's hard, and yet it never happened. Um, but this is the kind of constitutional change that when people learn about it together and push for it, 
If you think of what is achieved just by that research, just by that political education, just by uh, learning about those connections, what, what you've done is powerful on its own, even if the constitution doesn't change. Although I do think we should keep trying to change the constitution. So that's part of the idea in the book. It's just that the, the process of collectively doing things, even that seems as simple as research and learning about our history, actually is really powerful political work and collective learning. Well, I, I want to thank you again for speaking with me today. And do you have any closing remarks for our audience? I'm going to circle back to you and to the audience to say thank you for all that you're doing. Keep taking care of each other. These are tough times, but part of the lesson of my book and the way I'm feeling right now is optimistic about the future if we keep uh, not staying silent and taking care of each other. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you again, Professor Joc Jocelyn Simonson. You have a blessed day. You too.